you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. Psalm 52. Why do you boast, Almighty One, of mischief done against the godly? All day long you are plotting destruction. Your tongue is like a sharp razor, you worker of treachery. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking the truth. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. The righteous will see and fear and will laugh at the evildoer, saying, See the one who would not take refuge in God, but trusted in abundant riches and sought refuge in wealth. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because of what you have done. In the presence of the faithful, I will proclaim your name, for it is good. Now, I played Cassius' song because, to me, when I read Psalm 52, it sounds a whole lot like that, doesn't it? Right? Um, And in some ways, when I read this psalm, it kind of rubs me the wrong way within a Christian context. Just a little bit. Anybody else get rubbed the wrong way a little bit by this? It's like this kind of vengeful, angry-sounding psalm. And so as Christians, like us, who try to follow the teachings of Jesus, um, particularly things like love your neighbor, do good to those who harm you, um, you know, be willing to love even to the death, the model we have of Jesus uh, and what he did in the face of his enemies. This psalm does feel out of place in a Christian worship service. But I got to tell you something, y'all. I have loved this psalm this week because it says some things that I want to say to some rich and powerful people who speak words that cut like razors. Can I get a witness, right? That hurt, that do harm. Those who are entrusted with power and authority and don't use it to lead us towards human flourishing, but use it rather to do the things that are outlined in this psalm, to bring treachery, to bring harm, um, to devour, to deceive, to lie, and not to tell the truth, to plot destruction. And so after a week like this, y'all, sometimes I just need to be reminded that in the Bible, there are some poetic articulations <laughs> that just fit the mood, right? They just fit 
the mood. In particular here, we have a poetic articulation of how much God hates the boasting words of rich and powerful people who seem to get away with everything they say and do. Now, this is not the only psalm that does this, by the way. There are several psalms in which the writer of the psalm wrestles with this theological dilemma. And it comes in uh, two different ways in the psalms. One of those ways is in which the psalmist is trying to contemplate and understand why those who do these things end up being the ones getting all the wealth. Whereas those that seem to do right or do right seem to not get a lot of the share. And so there's a lot of Psalms and wisdom literature too in the Old Testament that wrestle with this seemingly uh, paradox. What's happening here, God? If you do good to be blessed, then why are those that don't do good blessed? That's one avenue that the Psalms wrestle with this theologically. The other avenue is when they, the Psalms, and you find this in the wisdom literature and in the prophetic literature, when they address those who have been given the responsibility of power. In the Old Testament, power, which is given to people in places of authority, is always viewed as a temporary gift that can be given by God and it can be taken away by God, right? But the theological dilemma that emerges, especially in the Psalms, is, God, why are you letting these people still have their power when they aren't doing or saying what we think they should be doing and saying? Or that you have said, even. Not necessarily our opinion about it. But what you have said they should be doing and saying. What do we do, God, whenever you don't take that power away? When will you take it away? Now, this is an echo you find even in the New Testament. You find it in Revelation where the martyrs cry out and they say, Oh, Lord, how long? How long will you allow these wicked people to have power to do to us what they're doing to us? This is what the early martyrs were asking. How, How much longer, God? So this is, within the Psalms, a theological conundrum that emerges from time to time. And so this week, with everything that we've dealt with and everything we've heard and seen and the rhetoric that is all around us, and not just this week, but this entire era in which we live, we're trying to figure out how to make it through. So I'm going to help us out a little bit. Next time you get on Twitter, go ahead and open your Bible up to Psalm 52. And when all that moral outrage rises up in you, just quote the Word of God, right? You know, just let it go, as the old preachers used to say. Just quote the Word of God, because it's in there, and it's wonderful, and it is so cathartic. You should totally try it. Not going to say whether I have or not, but you should totally try it. It's the Word of God. Now, When we look at this psalm, though, and we think about it as Scripture, 
which we may or may not prefer the nomenclature Word of God, it is interesting that in this psalm, God never speaks. Like there's no part in the psalm in which we hear God speaking, right, as, the, as, as a person, as, as a voice in this psalm. Rather, what we have here are the psalmist's words to God. They're his words. And I say he, by the way, because it says if, you've, if you're using a Bible that has a, a superscript, you'll see that um, this is a psalm of David written about a guy named Doeg, which I just prefer to call Doug because it just makes sense. Um, and Doug has done something really bad to David, and you'll find this story in Samuel. Uh, basically, Doug um, was a snitch, and we all know what happens to snitches, right? Snitches get stitches. And so David is like royally, because he's the king, ticked off that Doug has went and tattled on him to Saul. And as a result of Doug's snitching, 85 priests, good people, in David's circle were killed because of Doug went and snitching. Of course, Doeg gets away with it, and David, in his anger, writes this psalm and criticizes those in power for allowing the innocent to suffer because of the words of those who lie and sow deceit. But God's words are not recorded in this psalm. In fact, in this psalm, the psalmist takes the liberty to speak for God. Y'all just wait. When God, when God gets a hold of you, look at the language. He's going to snatch you. He's going to tear you. He's going to break you. He's going to destroy you. He's going to pull you out of the land of the living, which is Israel, by the way. Going to pull you out of the land of the living. Going to take you out of the community of God's covenant people. And in the psalm, the, 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 David does not even really address God until the very end of this poem. And while that may cause us a little bit of an issue when we try to discern the theology of this psalm, because on the one hand we're trying to discern what is David just being angry right now, and what is David doing that might be prophetic right now in this psalm. And as messy as that is, I got to tell y'all, that is why I love the Psalms. The Psalms are beautiful because they give us a glimpse into the way ancient people talked to God. They are our words to God. They were songs that would have been sung in congregational worship settings in Israel. And they represent the human experience don't they? They represent the human experience. They are real. They are vulnerable. They don't always have easy theological answers. They're probably not the best to build any sort of major kind of doctrine off of without something else to kind of come in and help inform it a bit. Because this is the nature of the Psalms. This is what they are. They are our words to God, and sometimes they do include God's words to us. But what's wonderful about them is when you get angry, you can quote them. Although I do not prefer it in a domestic argument. It doesn't turn out very well, right? Don't pull the Bible in. Don't play the God card. 
But today's psalm is a psalm from a man who had all the feels about how powerful people boast and how their words are like sharp razors. This power that people in authority are given in the theology of the Psalms is a, powerful, is a power that is outlined in God's covenant to his people that is to be something that is supposed to help the people that they lead flourish and thrive. But it's tricky business in the Old Testament. Because even though God lays this responsibility on those in authority, those that he has given power to have authority, even though God lays this responsibility on them, there is no guarantee that those in authority will actually honor the responsibility. And when they don't honor the responsibility in the theology of the Old Testament, it is up to God to intervene. But God does not always intervene like we like. And when God doesn't intervene in the way that they preferred, there would be laments that would be written. Laments are songs where they would lament or be sad or express their their sadness and their fears and their discouragements to God. Now, Psalm 52 is cool because it does read like a lament to a degree, but it also has elements of prophetic and wisdom speech as well. There's several things, and then when you read through it, you're like, man, I feel like I'm listening to Jeremiah. And then other times you're like, I feel like I'm listening to Ecclesiastes. And then, of course, there are those laments that emerge directly in our face from this psalm. It's almost as if the psalmist is so angry, he doesn't know what to say. To put it in 21st century terms, he probably typed out like 12 posts and deleted them before he wrote this. He didn't know what to say. He's outraged. You can sense it in the language of this psalm. By the way, the Hebrew is even difficult to translate. There's some confusion just in the very first few lines of what's going on there. It's almost as if it was written in haste, just outrage. He sees the wicked behavior of the rich and powerful. And all at once, he feels the deep sadness That comes from his own helplessness. And at the same time, he feels the prophetic force of God's anger towards those who act unjustly. Now, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer, but has anybody been there? Where the outrage is so great that you feel both saddened and angry at the same time. Saddened, but also feeling this force of like, I need to do something about this. I need to say something about this. This psalm gives voice to a man who had been wronged because he knew that God opposes injustice and that God especially opposes injustice that is meted out by those with the power to hurt the masses with just their words and especially their deeds. 
As cringeworthy as this psalm might sound to us on the outset, our little pious egos may go, let's keep all that vengeance language out of the worship setting. My heart gets it. It gets it. It is a song for the times. So it left me with this question. What are we to do if we live under the compulsion by Jesus to love our enemies, to practice meekness, to love those who hurt us, and to patiently endure to the end? What are we to do if we live under that compulsion to follow those teachings? What do we do when powerful people hurt the most vulnerable with their words and their deeds. I don't have all the answers to that, but I've got one option for us. We can write a worship song about it and sing it together in church because that's what the psalmist did, right? Come next Sunday. Seth, are you a songwriter? We need a song, all right? We need an anger song. No, really, as bizarre and as weird as that may sound, That is exactly the content of some of the Psalms we find in the Old Testament. We find corporate outrage in the Old Testament. We find instead of them going at their enemies necessarily, we see the people of God coming together and bringing that outrage to God in God's presence and in the presence of one another. Like this isn't a personal memo David scratched down, y'all. This is in the book of the Psalms. This isn't like a private journal entry. This is a way in which Scripture is inviting us to feel what we feel in the presence of God and in the presence of one another. And for that, we should be thankful. Seriously. I mean, it sounds weird. But we, we often talk about God is okay with our sadness. God is okay with these different things. But it's not just our sadness and our hurt that God welcomes God welcomes our anger as well. You you find this even in the prophets, like you find it in Habakkuk even, where where Habakkuk is struggling with this. God, how much longer? When are you going to do something about this mess we've been handed because wicked people, evil people with power are abusing the authority that you have given them? God is able to handle our anger and our outrage. Now, I'm not so sure that God would high-five the psalmist's celebratory language of snatching and breaking and tearing and uprooting. I don't know. I don't know how God feels about it. I don't necessarily think he'd be like, hey, way to go, David. Way to be angry and vengeful. Not necessarily. But I also don't think that we lose our audience with God for doing so or for feeling the way that we feel or for saying what we think God would want us to say in that moment. And maybe that's what we need more of in the church. Maybe. I'm just proposing that. Maybe we need a little bit more space to experience corporate lament as well as corporate outrage. So what does it look like for a Christian church to lean into God's presence with our anger and frustration. What might that look like? What does it look like to have the freedom to speak for God and remain under the influence of God's love for all people, including the wicked 
who abuse their power. Now let me tell you something. The person's face that came to your mind whenever I read Psalm 52, God loves them as much as he loves you. And if you're outraged about that, again, take it up with God because he can handle your outrage. But whoever it was that popped up in your mind when you read this, God loves them too. And so we're left here with a gift, space to lament, space to express anger, space to be corporately outraged. But the psalmist comes back around, and perhaps this is what we need to ease the tension a bit, is what we find here at the end of the psalm. Because rather than exhaust all of our energy railing on the powerful proud, perhaps we can do as the psalmist did at the end of this poem and come to find ourselves in the gaze of God's eye. This is what the psalmist does. After he has his fit and his moment and his outrage, he comes back around and it's almost like a deep breath, if you will. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust. Notice what he trusts in. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. And for those of us a few centuries down the road from the writing of this psalm who have now believed in Jesus and have chosen to follow the teachings of Jesus and are left with this call to love our enemies and to do good to those who harm us, I think that that particular phrase is something we need to pay attention to. That we are like olive trees in the house of God, trusting in what? God's steadfast love. There's a move from crying out for God's fiery vengeance to trusting in God's steadfast love towards us. Constantly staying in a state of outrage just isn't good for our mental health, y'all. It's just not. And there's a lot to be angry about, and if you don't know what to be angry about, it won't take you long to find something to be angry about every single day. But there is something about having that space to express it, but then finding ourselves under the deep gaze of God's love towards us. And as we explore that, we we are able sometimes to catch glimpses of how God might love those with whom we vehemently disagree with with the same steadfast love that we put our trust in. This is beautiful. The psalmist is mindful of his place in God's house. And he is mindful of his place under the care of a God who exhibits steadfast, long-suffering love. He, He offers thanksgiving. I will thank you forever because of what you have done. In the presence of the faithful, I will proclaim your name, for it is good. 
It is here where the peace and love to work towards a just world are found. Because if you try to work towards a just world with just anger and outrage, folks, we will end up becoming the things that we hate. We will end up becoming the people that we are speaking against in our righteous anger. Unless we find that place in God's gaze where we are loved, where we are planted, where we flourish, and where God is steadfast. And when we begin to recognize that, it is then that we can proceed to work towards a just world where God's peace and steadfast love is found. Now, you may not see a connection with this to our New Testament reading today. If you read the New Testament reading this week, uh, you may have expected me to preach from there since I generally do. But it's from Luke chapter 10, and it's a story of Mary and Martha. And many of you are probably familiar with this story. But for those who aren't, very briefly, this is the story about some friends of Jesus, Mary, Martha, and they have a brother named Lazarus. And Jesus eats with them a lot. I don't, they must cook really great food. I don't know. Um, Jesus eats with them a lot. He hangs out at their house. They're, they're besties. Jesus cries when Lazarus dies, we, we read about in John. Like, this is, a, this is his, part of his inner circle. We always call Peter, James, and John the inner circle. But Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were another kind of inner circle in the Gospels. And Jesus is at their house, and he's going to eat. And it will be custom for the women of the household to stay in the kitchen and prepare the meal. But in the story, that's not what happens. In the story, Martha stays in the kitchen working. And Mary, rather than being in there doing what she's supposed to be doing culturally, she is sitting in the room with Jesus at his feet. She's spending time with Jesus. And there's a lot we could talk about in that story on a very base level. I'm sure most of us have heard that story just preached about us spending time with God, right? Like, don't get so busy you don't spend time with God. And that is certainly part of it. Like, that is a very foundational part of that story, just on a very basic level. Like, just reading it, that is, that is the common moral to the story that emerges. But when we think about this in the cultural terms, Martha was... Mary was not only avoiding her task in the kitchen, kitchen. she was doing something very culturally inappropriate. She was in the room with the men at a time when she wasn't supposed to be in there yet, right? And so she's there, and, and Martha is upset because she feels like an injustice has been done because Martha saw the work as a priority. We got to get to work. We got to get to work. We got to work for Jesus. That's the priority on Martha's uh, vision, radar. But Mary wasn't even interested in that. It wasn't on her radar at all. Mary saw time in Jesus' presence as the priority. So which is it? Is the priority working for Jesus or is the priority spending time in Jesus' presence? And the truth is, it is both. It is both. It's just like the wisdom literature teaches us, there is a time and a season for everything. There's a time to be angry, a time to be sad, a time to be joyful, a time to laugh, a time to cry, a time to live, a time to die, right? A time for peace, a time for fighting even. In Ecclesiastes, these are the seasons in which we find ourselves living in. These aren't just the seasons of the world. These are the seasons of our lives. And I feel like I live that out every single week almost, you know? 
It's like every week you're going from these diff- moving in and out of these different seasons and, and, and the time for them and the appropriateness of these things. But what we have to guard ourselves against is getting stuck in verses 1 through 7, right? Getting stuck in verses 1 through 7 in our gaze, constantly being on what the wicked and powerful do. And if our gaze is always on the wicked and powerful, we will stop beholding the Lamb. We will stop catching glimpses of peace and love and goodness and joy and gentleness and meekness and self-sacrificial love and steadfastness and long-suffering and temperance. We will lose sight of the God who is slow to anger and quick to forgive. We will be drawn towards that in which we put our gaze. And so this psalm reminds us to watch our gaze and to be mindful of God's gaze towards us. That we are loved by Him. That we are created and that we are made in His image. And there's something that we need to find in that reality as we cry out in the wilderness, as we do the prophetic work, as we sow the seeds of the kingdom that we talked about this morning, there's something to be said about finding that place in His presence and catching glimpses of that. So our readings today empower us to find ourselves in the gaze of God. Look at the language here, by the way. And you got this language of outrage, this language of breaking and destroying and cutting and and, and uh, tearing. But then when we find the writer of this psalm at the end of the poem, the language changes. Loved, planted, flourishing, cared for, some of the images that come out of these final verses. <clears throat> they empower us to find ourselves in the gaze of God even when we are mad as heck since the children are with us today. Because right now, we should be mad about a lot of things. We should be angry about a lot of things. So let's write it out. Let's sing it out. Let's pray it out. Let's dance it out. Right? Let's shout it out. Let's do all those things in the presence of God, but don't let that outrage possess you. Because when it does, you become the thing that you hate. Amen? Stand with me. If our servers will get ready, our musicians will come. Father God, we want to thank you, God, for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. God, we want to thank you that we are infinitely loved, that your, that your love is steadfast, God, just like the psalmist offered thanksgiving, we offer thanksgiving, God, that you are good and that you do love us and that we are like olive trees planted, planted by the waters of of, of your living water, God, planted by those streams of your living water. God, planted to flourish and to thrive and to live and to experience your goodness, God, we are thankful, Lord. But God, we confess that we are outraged and we are angry and we are saddened, God. And we are asking, how much longer, how much longer will those who are hurt with their words 
and with their deeds and with their violence and with their power, how much longer will you allow this to go on, God? I wish we knew somehow. But God, we don't. What we do know is that we are in your gaze, and so are those that we are outraged at. So are those whom we are angry at, God. So help us to find that peace that comes from only setting our gaze on the Lamb, the Son of Peace. Forgive us for being possessed. Forgive us for being obsessed. Forgive us for having our eyes on the wrong things, God. And help us to get our eyes on the right things so that we may rightly see and discern how to sow those seeds of the kingdom when there's so much wickedness and violence and oppression around us, Lord. We trust you, God, and it is in you that we put our trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.